0: On tonight's episode, we are going to explore two converging stories that intersect in America's playground, the desert city of Las Vegas. These two stories will run parallel to each other for several years before converging to the same time and place. While the stakes in each story are drastically different, they both represent arms races— And both reflect how competition and escalation forces people, businesses, and governments to fight tooth and nail to become bigger, better, brighter, and stronger. Both stories have had a strong influence on our American culture, or Americana, both locally in Las Vegas and as an entire country. Finally, both stories are about illuminating the sky in Las Vegas, albeit through very different methods. And while Las Vegas is front and center in this episode, we'll begin our story by firing up the DeLorean and traveling back to the heartland, 1942. This is Atomic Neon. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. On a cold Chicago morning, on a college squash court, the history of the human race would be altered forever. A group of scientists gathered on the frozen concrete, fighting the cold in their nerves. On the court lay a nondescript pile of black bricks Surrounding this pile was high-tech machinery, typically found in cutting-edge laboratories. A mechanical crane slowly lifted the black rods out of the pile piece by piece. The needles and the meters on the machinery jumped, as they emitted short clicks. With each rod lifted, the clicking grew in intensity and frequency. As the last rod was elevated, the clicking became a roar. What these scientists were witnessing was the first-ever chain reaction of uranium-neutron atoms, or fission. It represented to the world a promise of unlimited energy and a firepower of a magnitude never before imagined. Before this monumental moment, scientists around the world had theorized its possibility, and they quickly realized the deadly potential of harnessing fission. With the help of Albert Einstein, President Roosevelt was convinced that the race to master this technology might be the only race that mattered. We all know what was happening on the world stage in the 1940s, and it was terrifying to realize that a German scientist had been the first to theorize a nuclear chain reaction. Worse yet, no one knew how far the Germans had advanced in their own pursuit. The Nazis had stopped the sale of uranium from the Czech mines that they had seized. Why were they collecting uranium? An ominous German factory was erected on a river in Norway. A river that happened to be the only water source in the world that produced what was known as heavy water. That is water whose hydrogen atoms possess an extra neutron. The transfer of neutrons was critical in the study of fission and chain reactions. The heavy water factory churned out truck after truck filled with this water. Why? Seeing the end game, But with no knowledge of the size of the head start Germany had, the U.S. government embarked on one of the largest-scale scientific collaborations in history. Scientists and professors from across the country began disappearing. It was the same old story. A skinny, frail, chain-smoking man would show up on campus. And the next day, leading physicists and the brightest minds in academia would skip town.
1: Las Vegas, Nevada, the entertainment and fun capital of the world, where the clock never stops and the doors never close. This is the city of daytime sun and nighttime fun.
0: The Wild West was fading from Las Vegas. It was never really there to begin with, but Vegas's take on the Wild West sawdust on the casino floor. Signs with ranch and rodeo, and the accompanying themes were disappearing at a rapid rate. In their place, Vegas was embracing the mid-century suburbia. The mass production of the car changed the landscape of the country, and Sin City was no different. Now easily accessible, suburban and middle-class Americans were seeking rest, relaxation, and fun under the desert sun. Hotels and casinos began reflecting the explosion of the suburbs, with a focus on sleek, curving pools, impeccably curated lawns, and a full hotel, gambling, and entertainment experience you could drive right into. Writers have noted a fascinating hypothesis that Vegas architecture and lifestyle is a mirror for American society. And America was coming out of the war and heading to the atomic age. Vegas would be quick to embrace it. Mob bosses and casino owners which were usually the same people, were engaged in an arms race for the attention of pleasure-seeking travelers, seeing who could build the newest, grandest, and most luxurious pool. A keyhole-shaped pool was upstaged by a larger one in the shape of a crescent moon. Soon every letter in the alphabet had a corresponding pool in Las Vegas. Flying overhead looked like staring into a bowl of alphabet soup. Quote, in 1947, Benjamin Siegel built the Flamingo with an Olympic pool with scalloped edges. Then the Desert Inn promptly built a bigger, keyhole-shaped pool. Thereupon, the sands retaliated with an even larger pool, the shape of a kidney. Then the New Frontier built a heated pool with a subsurface glass-enclosed observation chamber, serving underwater cocktails. But the Tropicana topped them all, creating a half-moon-shaped pool that featured underwater music. End quote. This period of Las Vegas was dubbed the Sunbelt Modern, and it was Benjamin Siegel, visionary of the Flamingo Hotel that ushered it in. Does that name sound familiar? No? Maybe his nickname, which no one would dare say in his presence. Renowned for his short temper, Siegel would go bugs at the drop of a hat, but fear was a powerful tool and Bugsy Siegel had it in spades. Murder was a powerful tool as well, and Bugsy used both to build his empire in the desert. The lore of money, sunshine, and a severe lack of oversight from government forces attracted the mob, and once they had Vegas in their vice grip, it would be many decades before they would relinquish it.
1: In this early and troubled stage of the atomic age, our very lives may depend on always being alert. <laughs>
0: The missing scientists weren't actually missing. They were congregating in the New Mexico desert. And there were so many of them, they created a small town for the operation. Los Alamos would be ground zero for the race to create the nuclear bomb. And the skinny chain smoker, he was Robert Oppenheimer, the man assigned to oversee the entire project. Now Oppenheimer would bear the weight and pressure of this position, and he would calm his nerves by lighting up more cigarettes. He had no idea how close the Germans were to the bomb, so he worked relentlessly, often forgetting to eat and sleep. On a rare break from his work, he had a few friends over for cocktails one night. His one friend, a chemical engineer, waited for a quiet moment between the two of them. He casually mentioned that he had contacts with the Soviets in case Opp wanted to pass along some scientific information. Oppenheimer shrugged it off. Quote, That would be dreadful, treasonous, he said. They moved on to other conversations, and it was forgotten within minutes. This was late 1942. Russia was an ally and bearing the brunt of the Nazi wrath. Many Americans felt sympathy for the Russians, and in addition, communism was not quite yet a four-letter word. Many academics and elites had dabbled in communist ideas and theories. Though Oppenheimer shrugged off the reference to Russian intelligence, this revealed a dangerous third player in the nuclear race. Russia did not have the capability and resources to put into developing atomic energy. But that wouldn't be necessary if they could just steal it. If they could get into Los Alamos, their spy network could get all of the secrets and plans to Moscow. One of these young scientists was a man named Theodore Hall, and he turned 18 in 1944. He already graduated high school four years ago, in fact. After finding Queens College too easy, he transferred to Harvard. He was one of the best and brightest physicists in the country. And soon, the smoking man appeared on campus, and Hall was among the disappearing scientists. His genius stood out at Harvard, and it would soon stand out at Los Alamos. His coworkers described him as a natural-born rebel, which fueled his brilliance. Unfortunately, his rebellious nature would make him the most dangerous man to the U.S. government. We'll get back to Ted Hall a little bit later. Now, the U.S. government was aware of this imminent threat, and given the scale of the Manhattan Project and likelihood of communist sympathizers among the academic world, they were very concerned about their ability to prevent leaks. But this was a secondary threat, They had to keep moving as fast as they could and beat Hitler to the bomb. Los Alamos kept the atomic train going day and night, and Oppenheimer kept lighting up cigarettes and driving the engine tirelessly. Despite his 100-pound frame and chronic cough, he had the ability to do what no super soldier in the U.S. Army could, win the war.
1: Las Vegas' famous strip is world-renowned for its hotels and motels where the vacationer can spend many interesting hours, even days, browsing through well-appointed shops or viewing the breathtaking beauty of the carefully landscaped grounds. Although these hostelries were built at the cost of millions of dollars and the accommodations of...
0: Bugsy Siegel represented the future of Las Vegas, the gambling capital of the world, Sin City, with mesmerizing flashing lights on the outside of the casinos and constant action inside the mob had made a splashy entrance. Though the Flamingo would be his, it wasn't his original vision. He was the adopted parent. The Flamingo's true father was Billy Wilkerson. Wilkerson was the founder of The Hollywood Reporter. Piggybacking on his success in media, he successfully branched out into the nightclub world and owned several in L.A. But this wasn't what made him the perfect mind for creating a casino. What made him perfect... Well, who would better know how to lure hapless gamblers and separate them with their money than a hardcore gambling addict? In this category, Wilkerson was a pro. Quote, Wilkerson dug deep into his dark addiction to figure out ways for gamblers to lose themselves in the action, end quote. No detail was overlooked. The casino was built a little separated from the heavy action on the strip, thus suppressing the temptation to leave pumping air conditioning 24 seven, banning windows and clocks, keeping the lights permanently low. Once the gamblers were lured inside, the trap was set. Architecturally, Wilkerson brought with him the glitz and glamor of Hollywood, given his success in the City of Angels. Quote, he designed a casino with sleek, thin horizontal lines and large panels of glass, the facade oriented toward traffic, End quote. In addition to Hollywood, He took further cues from a place with even more sophisticated tastes of high society. Restaurants and showrooms were modeled after Paris and the Moulin Rouge. His gamble that Americans were ready to move out of rugged and into luxury was the perfect intuition. The middle class would soon swell and the US would enter the post-war boom. However, another gamble Wilkerson made didn't pay off. His gamble was his entire construction loan at the crafts table. He bet his entire future on a roll of the dice, over a million dollars, and came up sevens. Even before Vegas was Vegas, Lady Luck was playing her games. At the threshold of creating an empire, Wilkerson was swallowed up by the very thing that would make him rich. The vultures came in the form of the mob, and they put up the money to continue construction and took over the flamingo. Siegel was put in charge. Now this was problematic. Quote, Siegel's expertise lay in murder and extortion alone, not in construction. End quote. What followed was a comedy of errors. He hired his buddies from home to important positions, including his girlfriend as interior designer. Quote, he flew in plumbers and carpenters, greased truckers for speedy deliveries, and paid a premium on the black market for scarce materials in post-war America. He built walls so thick that during a 1960s remodeling, it took a giant wrecking ball three whole days to demolish a single wall. He ordered separate plumbing and sewer lines to each of the 105 hotel rooms and designed a private penthouse with an escape hatch to a zigzagging maze of secret passageways. End quote. While the construction and even opening of the Flamingo was expectedly a disaster, the owners eventually figured it out. The lore of the new Las Vegas was impossible not to capitalize on. The glitz and glamour was irresistible to the exploding middle class begging to spend their cash. The pink upholstery, Gucci architecture, and fancy clothes were represented in the new American leisure. Siegel would soon have to answer to his bosses for his incompetence. He was fired and given a severance package of two bullets to the head. So what was the final lure to get the guest in the door? How would they know that their wildest dreams of luxury and hedonism lay inside waiting for them? A big, flashy, neon sign. The lighthouse of the desert. Instead of guiding ships to the harbor, it would guide sinners to the cathedral of their own vices. Architectural Darwinism would soon set in and good old fashioned escalation was in order. Competitors had to adapt or die, and adapt they did as fast as possible. Down the street, the Thunderbird soon rose, a slightly more affordable alternative to the Flamingo, catering more to locals in what they called luxurious informality. But the comfortable fireplaces in the lobby were an afterthought. The Thunderbird's sign would be the main attraction. Quote, in contrast to the monochrome Flamingo sign, the Thunderbird was colored all the hues of the rainbow it also sat more prominently on the Strip, its claws sunk in a pedestal on top of a three-story observation tower painted turquoise, a then-popular color for Cadillac convertibles. End quote. The two birds twinkled over the desert night, but they would not be alone for long. The mobile station on the Strip erected a glowing red pegasus, and the El Ranchero Hotel put up a bright glowing windmill. The twisting neon cactus flashing Desert Inn soon joined in. While they were no doubt in competition with each other, the clustering of these neon beacons also had the effect of collectively casting an even wider net, attracting tourists to their luminance. Their popularity soared, and casino owners were swimming in money.
1: You and I are living in the atomic age. The peaceful atom, no longer just a laboratory dream, is here today, working wonders, providing a happier More abundant world for all mankind.
0: Rumors were flying around Los Alamos. Why was the army and dozens of scientists, many with European accents, congregating here? Death ray tech, submarines, or some really weird shit like a military nudist colony? Oppenheimer grew worried and decided to try his hand at counterintelligence. If Germany learned what they were up to at Los Alamos, They may increase their efforts. He sent a young scientist and her husband into town for some innocent bar hopping. They were ordered to have loose lips, drink, and talk about Los Alamos. Tell anyone who wonders that they were building electric rockets. They did as they were told, only no one cared. They went from bar to bar, speaking loudly about the secret lab on the hill, hoping someone was eavesdropping. She danced and canoodled with the locals, but they were interested in her, not the boring science stuff. Finally, they entered a crowded bar, and the husband screamed out, You know what I'm doing in Los Alamos? Building electric rockets! The puzzled regulars tipped their glass to him and continued with their conversations. While this mission had failed, there were plenty of interested parties, just not at the bar. Germany, and especially Russia, were pulling out their hair over the lack of information flowing their way. In the winter of 1943, the Third Reich's death march through Russia had been permanently halted on the frozen battleground of Stalingrad. In 1944, the invasion of Normandy and D-Day had opened up a two-front war. Germany would soon be defeated without the need for a nuclear attack. While the staff at Los Alamos thought they might have reached the finish line, they would soon learn the race was still on, and their opponents would be breathing down their neck partly due to their own hand. Fortunately for the world, the Nazis never made significant progress on the atomic bomb. A daring James Bond-style mission in Norway to blow up the heavy water factory had succeeded earlier in the war, and the program sputtered, never really gaining traction. However, Japan was still fighting, and the battles intensified in the Pacific. The president pressed the need for the atomic bomb to quell the escalating death tolls. The research continued its tireless and breakneck pace. Oppenheimer kept lighting up his cigarettes. Later that year, the Manhattan Project reached its endgame. They believed they could build a functioning bomb, but first they needed to test it. Oppenheimer and his team packed several military cars and drove deeper into the desert. The site was dubbed Trinity, and here a 100-foot steel tower was erected. This tower would be ground zero for a test of a functioning nuclear bomb. It was hoisted to the top, awaiting the final countdown. Scientists assembled at a safe distance or barricaded themselves into custom-built observational bomb shelters. The previous night was peppered with rain, wind, and the occasional flash of lightning, But meteorologists predicted a window of clear skies at 5 a.m. All observers were instructed to assume blast position, lying face down and covering their eyes. This order was disregarded. The sole journalist allowed on site found an eerie absurdity in witnessing high-ranking scientists covering their skin in sunblock in the dead of night. A warning flare streaked across the sky, five minutes. Welder masks were passed out though most refused those as well. The countdown hit zero. Everything remained silent. But as the physicists describe, it was as if the sun had risen, and they were now in the middle of day. It was the brightest light many claimed to have ever seen. Everything went from pitch black to full visibility for miles around them. Ones that looked directly into the light without protection were temporarily blinded by a white flash. More so than the light, the witnesses recall the surge of heat. One witness stated, quote, the thing that got me was not the flash, but the blinding heat of a bright day in your face in the cold desert morning. It was like opening a hot stove, end quote. The white flash turned yellow and then shifted to orange as it rose into the air. Merging with the sky, it turned a glowing purple. Lagging behind the light came the sound, echoing off the distant mountains, and reverberating through the desert rocks. Oppenheimer and his colleagues felt a sense of jubilation and relief. They had succeeded where no one had before. They had completed a task that had consumed their lives over several years. They had won the war for their country. All of those were things to be enormously proud of. But there was also reported to be an uneasy silence and an air of dread once the dust settled and the champagne was uncorked. I don't know if this was revisionist history from witnesses after the horrors of nuclear war had time to really sink in, but Oppenheimer claimed that in the moment, he remembered an ancient Hindu scripture, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds.
1: When the sun goes down over the western horizon, Las Vegas becomes a city of multicolored neon signs and exciting entertainment. Bathing suits and sports togs are put aside for informal evening wear in this Broadway of the desert. Dancing is a favorite pastime at the intimate sky rooms that overlook Las Vegas. Here new friends are made, old acquaintances renewed.
0: As the 1950s drew closer, the neon lights were soaring and burning brighter than ever before. The flamingo itself had to upgrade. An eight-story tower was put up the world's largest champagne tower with neon bubbles fizzing up and down the bulbs are described like this quote, "they crept up buildings until there was no surface left to occupy formed gravity defying structures rising far into the sky and revealed our deepest desires in mounds of blinding light" end quote. in other neon sign news quote, "the flaming red dune signs was as tall as a 20 story building" the electric Thunderbird facade as long as two football fields. The Strip's new recipe for success became inextricably linked to the thousands of light bulbs and miles of neon. For in Las Vegas, neon was measured not by the foot, but by the mile, End quote. By the late 1940s, casino owners finally managed to overflood the market with pools and manicured lawns. The mid-modern luxury phase was beginning its decline. Suburbia's wildfire-like spread across America was part of the reason. With the middle class thriving, the pool parties spread into their homes. Why travel to Vegas for a pool party when you can have one at home? Vegas had more to offer than their own spin on suburban paradise. Builders and casino owners were becoming more efficient and learning how to optimize their profit. Evolution was entering a new stage. This stage was known as the Pop City phase and it was epitomized by the legendary Stardust Casino. This was a mass marketing technique that Vegas soon perfected. Build it cheap, focus on the casino, and cover it all up with mesmerizing neon lights. The mesmerizing lights were reflected in the Stardust sign. Quote, 7,100 feet of neon tubing and 11,000 light bulbs covered the Stardust generic casino. It depicted a planetary system gravitating around the plastic globe, which stuck out exactly at the fold of the facade positioned at maximum exposure and circled by a trailing Sputnik. Beams of light radiated from the earth into the sawtooth top among flickering stars. On either side of the earth twinkled stardust in massive electric jag font. The S alone contained 975 lamps. The stardust's stellar sign its glow visible from three miles away, end quote. This was the epitome of the pop age, as well as the mob's run of Vegas. They controlled the Stardust, and despite the best efforts of the Nevada Gaming Commission, it remained the gangsters that called the shots. Cigar-smoked latent rooms in Kansas City and Chicago were still making all of the important decisions on the Strip, like who lived and who died. The main objective of testing is weapons development to strengthen national security but also included
1: are scientific experiments for the Atomic Energy Commission, military projects for the Air Force, Army, and Navy, and defense tests for the Federal Civil Defense Administration, primarily concerned with the effects of nuclear weapons on cities, industries, and people.
0: Among those witnessing the first successful atomic test was the young wonder boy Ted Hall. You may remember we mentioned him earlier. He was as much in awe of the demonstration as anyone, and he would soon make shockwaves of his own on a global scale. Hall's roommate at Harvard had been a dedicated communist, and he had dabbled himself. As we mentioned, this was not atypical on college campuses in the early 1940s. Upon joining the Manhattan Project, Hall decided that his duty as a human being was to balance the power between nations so that equilibrium could be maintained. He decided to help the Russians however he could. The Soviet spy network, so desperate for any information on the bomb, now had an ace in the hole, or more specifically, they finally had a fox in Los Alamos. Seeing the raw power of the bomb firsthand only reinforced Hall's belief that the sliding scales of power needed balancing. Shortly after the successful test at Trinity, The first active nuclear device, Little Boy as it was known, was delivered to Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. The entire city was destroyed. The crew at Los Alamos celebrated upon hearing the news that the device was successful, and the tireless work had come to fruition. They popped champagne and booked reservations for celebratory dinners. That night, Oppenheimer was given further details on the true destructive force of Little Boy. As he passed the memo around, the mood in the room dropped. When he walked home, he noticed one of the scientists curled over in the bushes, vomiting. The scientists had a better understanding of the horrors of nuclear war. The rest of the world did not. A few days later, another bomb, this one called Fat Man, destroyed Nagasaki. This was followed by the full surrender of Japan. The war was over, the men came home. A sailor grabbed a nurse and planted a kiss during a ticker tape parade. While the scientists at Los Alamos were packing up and heading home, Ted Hall was furiously writing in his office. His lab partner had gone for a picnic and it was the perfect opportunity for treason. He had all of the classified plans, holding all the secrets of the atomic achievements and he was copying them into a concise report. His door flew open. He panicked and tried to shove all the papers at once into his desk and out of sight. But it was his partner. He had come to say a quick goodbye and didn't notice a flustered Hall scrambling with the documents. Hall finished the report and headed out to his rendezvous. He found her, a woman sitting on a bench reading a magazine. They exchanged code phrases to verify their identities. The Russian spy accepted Hall's report by stuffing it into a tissue box and replacing the tissues on top, and she headed straight to the train station. To her concern, she arrived at a station swarming with FBI agents. Word had leaked that the bomb was built in Los Alamos, and the government was determined to cast a wide net to catch any strays smuggling secrets out. She couldn't run out of the station. That would attract attention. Instead, she calmly approached an FBI agent upon boarding her train. He asked for her ticket and searched her bags. She laughed about forgetting where she put it. Before she bent down to fumble through her bag, she handed the agent her tissue box. Hold this for a second, she said, and she went into her suitcase. She produced a ticket from her bag. The agent was satisfied seeing the ticket and peering into her open bag. He waved her through and onto the train. As she boarded, the agent turned back for her and called out, excuse me, miss, hold on. Her heart must have stopped, but she played it cool. She turned around. "'Your tissues,' the agent said, holding the box out. "'Thank you.' She took it, and the train doors closed. Now, I'm not sure who this Russian spy was, but that moment is straight out of a spy thriller. The plans for the bomb were in the agent's hands, but an innocuous tissue box was the one thing he didn't think to search. As the train faded into the distance and out of the station, the U.S.'s nuclear dominance faded with it. The real arms race would soon begin, as the Cold War soon raged. Oppenheimer thought his battle was over, but it was only beginning. He would not only re-engage in a race for technology, but he would face the full paranoia of his own government from his connections with communism and the fleeting suggestion he once received at a cocktail party. The U.S. Air Force soon detected high levels of radiation while cruising over the Pacific Ocean. Their worst fears were confirmed. The USSR was now testing nuclear weapons. They had drawn even in the arms race and may even be surging ahead. The destructive force of the fat man and little boy were yesterday's news. They were the trophies of winning the race to a nuclear bomb, but the next race was heating up, and our opponents seemed to be running neck and neck with us. The next frontier... Hydrogen bombs in theory would render the uranium and plutonium bombs of World War II mere firecrackers Once we had the bomb what was the next step in the escalating arms race build more of them Los Alamos was closed but other test sites soon popped up one of them in Nevada Here's where our two stories converge
1: In a few seconds you will witness a scene often viewed by the residents of Las Vegas but an unusual thrill for the visitor When these scenes were being filmed, scientists were standing by at the Nevada Proving Grounds a hundred miles away to detonate an atomic device. Watch closely for a man-made sun.
0: As high and as bright as the lights of the casinos would shine in the desert, this neon glow would soon be rivaled by the sky itself. The nuclear age would come right to Vegas' back door, and in typical Vegas fashion, the city would make a spectacle of it. Operation Hardtack would set up shop in the Nevada desert. Here they would perform the atomic tests in order to perfect the bigger and better bomb to pull ahead of the Russians. At its peak, the government would perform over 30 tests within a month period, and it would total over 100 above-ground explosions. The flashes and the ensuing mushroom clouds were easily visible from the strip. Initially, casino owners feared that the explosions may knock the dice off the crafts tables and piss off the gamblers. What caused further trepidation was that apparently a group of white-coated doctors emerged on the Strip after one of the initial detonations. They sampled pedestrians for any symptoms or side effects of the blast. But the initial concern was soon quelled through government assurances. So instead, casino owners decided to push the tests as an attraction rather than a deterrent. Instead of inducing panic and mass exodus, guests on the Strip were enthralled and casinos were happy to provide a chair for them to pull up and watch the nuclear age from the front row. Hotels advertised rooms with a nuclear view. The bomb-testing schedule was published. The potential side effects were downplayed through tourist advertising and propaganda. An example of this was a promotional picture of a large-chested woman in a bikini brandishing a Geiger counter over a smiling old desert rat. Showgirls were photographed riding a giant rocket, showing that sex still sells, even in radioactive fallout. It worked like a charm. Excited citizens marked their calendars so that their vacations on the Strip would coincide with a blast. Bars and casinos set up viewing parties on their roofs. The detonations typically took place at dawn, so partygoers would drink until sunrise, served atomic cocktails, equal parts vodka, brandy, and champagne with a splash of sherry, while lounge acts like Wayne Newton would serenade them. Guests would end their night watching an atomic blast light up the sky. A news report describes this blast as, quote, A fantastically bright cloud is climbing up like a huge umbrella. You brace yourself against the shockwave. Then, after what seems like hours, the man-made sunburst fades away, end quote. And not just the luxury hotels cashed in. Trailers packed the highways, and motels were packed on test days. There was an atomic-view motel that popped up in the desert, offering an unobstructed sight line to the bomb blast from the comfort of one's lounge chair. End quote. Families would hike as close as they could to the blast site. Now, to us, this sounds absolutely insane. Knowing what we know now, the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were witnessed by the entire world. Chernobyl was well documented. However, this was the golden age of atomic energy, and it was a positive atmosphere for most of the 1950s. The after effects of radiation were not yet known, and instead of being the certain vehicle of our annihilation, the rise of atomic weapons was thought to be the end of war. Who would fight us when we had the power to destroy everything? Atomic energy was the future. This was the utopian vision of the future. The Jetsons, World Fairs, Tomorrowland. We were looking into the future with limitless possibilities. Technology could save us. It could save the world. The realities of nuclear war would not be fully realized until the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s. Perhaps the weirdest piece of Americana that came from Vegas' love affair with the atomic bomb was the beauty pageants. There are pictures of young blondes posing with the sash and various mushroom cloud-related apparel, sometimes molding their hair in the infamous shape. A description of the most famous image of these beautiful queens went like this. Quote, Arms spread apart, blonde curls bobbing in the wind, joyful bright red lips, a cotton mushroom cloud affixed to her white bikini, the image of Miss Atomic Bomb is unforgettable. And it's one that has been absorbed in our pop culture lexicon. From Halloween costumes, to a hit rock song, to a dud of a musical. End quote. The rock song on this quote refers to Miss Atomic Bomb by the Killers. But I'm not sure what the dud of a musical was. Now the blast did have some immediate negative effects on bystanders. Pets would obviously and correctly freak out. Alarms would be set off. Engineers were at one point worried about the local dam cracking due to the tremors. However, none of these dangers caused the atomic craze to diminish. What did? The blasts got boring. They eventually weren't exciting enough. Not often enough. Not loud or flashy enough. Tourists were on to the next big thing. Now, it's not known how many people got sick from the fallout, but it's believed that a ton of people's lives were cut short. Even the local director of testing, while assuring everyone that there was no danger, was slowly going blind. The government assured everyone that the radiation levels in the desert were safe, but people began getting sick at an alarming rate. Global treaties and awareness of the danger moved these tests underground or away from the population. Vegas's proud title of atomic city would soon be gone. It would have to make do with basking in the glow of the ever-growing neon lights that blanketed the Strip. The neon revolution continued to surge up and down the Strip and throughout the downtown. Competition between the sign companies, while booming, was fierce. The Young Electric Sign Company, once the dominant player, was now joined by many competitors from California setting up shop in Vegas. An architect gets paid to just make a rendering, but sign builders only get paid when their contract was signed. Casino owners pitted rival companies in contests to come up with the best ideas for their next signs and facades. One result of these competing firms was the Aladdin's new sign, ironically designed by a former Disney animator. The vision included a string of hundreds of golden ornaments curled up to a revolving three-sided sign. The sign held a fountain spraying gold. Above that, a rotating car-sized lamp. This too covered in thousands of lights. Giant golden pylons held up the structure. 40,000 bulbs illuminated it. A second neon sign with the Aladdin spelled out in pop culture's conception of Arabian lettering was added to further complement the sign. Almost a third of the total budget for the hotel renovations was spent on the sign. It was lauded upon completion making the cover of Architectural Forum and credited with the successful rebranding of a decaying hotel. Once again, competitors were forced to escalate. The ever-lagging New Frontier Hotel, which was once the old Frontier Hotel, before rebranding to meet mid-century modern tastes, was rebranding again to simply The Frontier. The new logo was placed, quote, on a 126-foot-long golden spine of stacked diamonds revolving with an elongated arc structure, painted sky blue so that it would dissolve into the daylight, End quote. Our favorite mafia-run glitzy staples on the Strip, the Stardust and the Flamingo, soon followed suit. The Flamingo's heralded neon pink champagne tower would soon have company. A 130-foot plumed feather covered with salmon, pink, and blush neon, the sign could fill upward, ripple, and fan out with coordinated sequences of light. The total amounted to two miles of neon tubing and 6,000 light bulbs. $500,000 got the stardust back to the top, literally. At 188 feet, it was the tallest freestanding sign in the world. Like the flamingo's new sign, it would sparkle with choreographed sequences. Quote, the stardust name glowed after which the shimmering stars appeared to drop like falling stardust, end quote. The shape of the sign? A cloud of stars, not unlike the mushroom clouds that populated the desert landscape. Atomic and neon had come together to make stardust. So what was next? Other than bigger, taller, and brighter? Well, neon tubes, if arranged and synchronized correctly, could mimic movement. When the Thunderbird, remember that as one of the originals, created a 560-foot wall of light bulbs, dubbed the world's longest, it could twinkle in the night, and eight miles of neon tubing outlined the letters. To once again move to the top of the neon summit, the stardust upgraded. 400 yards of a sign and littered with variously colored neon stars, the lighting was synchronized to create an effect of, quote, different patterns emerged that seemed to move lighting the facade from orange, red, blue, white, or any possible mix, end quote. So the Thunderbird could twinkle, but the Stardust could dance. The sign companies began to mine the lexicon of popular culture for inspiration. Childhood animation, comic strips, cereal boxes, anything for inspiration on branding and font. Even the Flamingo's famous neon champagne flute needed another upgrade to keep up with the Aladdin and various other rivals that illuminated the night. The end result of this golden age of the neon sign was the complete overstimulation of the senses. Walking down Fremont Street at night was described as watching a giant television tuned to all the channels at once. As time progressed and Vegas changed, the neon signs would slowly be retired much like Bugsy Siegel. I mean, they weren't shot in the head, but often blown up. Demolition of buildings became the new spectacle for Vegas locals, a non-nuclear option to watching things disintegrate. Luckily, some of the signs were salvaged and given a desert resting place in a neon boneyard. This neon boneyard is a museum where you can walk among the oversized relics of the neon age. In a town that has little need for history and tradition, it's nice to hold on to some of the nostalgia vegas the reflection of america would move into different phases hotels would be themed roman style with luxurious columns a circus complete with tent facade and a trapeze artist flying over gamblers heads this would be interrupted by the corporations muscling their way into the casino business and in the process muscling the mob out the 1980s loomed and with it big corporations this meant corporate modernism devoid of color and creativity Size, efficiency, and modernism dominated the scene. Sterile, conglomerate mega-hotels operated casinos like a machine. No need for glitz or pizzazz. However, Vegas eventually snapped out of it, and the themes once again came to prominence. You could visit multiple cities worldwide within one trip to Vegas, see the Eiffel Tower, the New York skyline, or tour Italy. To rival theme parks, Soon there were Egyptian pyramids, sinking pirate ships, even an erupting volcano that smelled like piña colada. Vegas entered the Disneyland phase. Fun for the whole family was its new motto. Today it's back to an adult playground. What happens here stays here is the current motto. This phase is currently known as the Starkitecture phase, as it is believed that buildings designed by world-famous architects would in their own way attract tourists, much like the neon signs did. These megastructures are sleek and contemporary, a far cry from the all-you-can-eat buffets and $5 rooms of the past. Now the hotels offer a full Vegas experience without ever leaving their walls. Restaurants, clubs, pools, spas, everything you can ask for in one building. The neon sign wars were left in the rearview mirror long ago to continue with the next phase of American life and the next race toward the latest craze. The cold war is over and the stockpiling of nukes seemed to have peaked, but just like a chain reaction, one atom could strike another and energy from that exchange could trigger others, feeding itself until it explodes with more force than the world has ever witnessed. What I find interesting about both stories in this episode is how competition breeds escalation and innovation. America needed to stop at nothing to make an atomic bomb once they saw the risk of Hitler getting there first. Russia then saw the threat of a future adversary having a significant advantage on the world stage, and they found a way to even the odds. On a smaller scale, once the Flamingo lit up the Strip and offered a new kind of luxury and design, Other casinos had no choice but to adapt or die. Once a neon sign towered over the strip and showered its competition in a gradient glow, the competitors had to make their own lights. The struggle, though, is how to put the toothpaste back in the tube. When does escalation end? Perhaps when world powers have the capability to annihilate the world. We've reached an equilibrium in a way, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was a seesaw moment in history. If we teetered instead of tottered, the world would have looked very different. Finally, I love the idea that Vegas mimics America. The shift from Wild West to mid-century modern, from family values to what happens here stays here. It is downheartening that the way in which Vegas moves at a breakneck pace leaves no room for preservation. Hotels and neon signs that go with it are demolished and bulldozed at an incredible rate. Before we can mourn, the next wave of entertainment is erected. While the monuments and landmarks of many ancient cities are made of stone, cement, and other materials that leave remnants, the grand displays of Las Vegas, the Roman Forum, the Venetian arches, the curves and colors of the wind are made of latex and styrofoam. The pop art and pop-up nature of Vegas is not meant to have a shelf life. Thank God we have a time machine. Special thanks to the production team of Van Voorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Our major sources for this episode were three books. The first is called The Strip, Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream by Stefan Al. The second book is called Bomb, The Race to Build and Steal the World's Most Dangerous Weapon. That's by Steve Scheinken. The third book is called The Money and the Power, The Making of Las Vegas and Its Hold on America. That's by Sally Denton. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you in the future.